Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September the 6th, 2022. We've been doing uh, a lot of shows recently about women and the sexual quote-unquote revolution, sexual rights, feminism. Did a show last week with the uh, the Slate legal correspondent, Dahlia Lithwick. She has a new book out, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, suggesting that female rights when it comes to abortion represent the front line, not just in liberalism, but in what she calls the battle to save America. Um Last year, we did a conversation with the, with the big daddy, the grandma of feminism, Margaret Atwood, uh, on democracy, citizenship, and dystopian uh, fiction, of course, built on her classic, The Handmaid's Tale, imagining a world where women no longer had rights, where society fetishized fecundity, and eroticism was done away with. For most feminists, this is a bad thing. Uh, a few months ago, I had the English feminist Catherine uh, Angel on the show, uh, and we were talking about pro-abortion arguments. She believes that for girls to grow up into women, they need to take sexual risks. In other words, in conventional liberal terms, the creation of the self requires a degree of sexual adventure. She articulates this in an interesting way in her book, Daddy Issues, Love and Hate in the Time of Patriarchy Angel, I think is a fairly conventional uh, but skilled, gifted feminist. My guest today might not be in the angel camp, so to speak. Uh, she is Louise Perry, and she has a, um, a very controversial new book out. I'm not sure whether this controversy is good or bad. Uh, but her book is The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, which supposedly um, is a book about the mindless orthodoxies of our ultra-liberal era. I'm not sure if we do indeed live in an ultra-liberal era, but um, Louise is joining us from South London today. Louise, um, what would you respond to somebody like uh, Catherine Angel, I'm not sure if you know her work, suggesting that for women or girls to grow into women, they need to adventure sexually in the same way as men. They need to realize themselves and full adulthood requires a degree of sexual experimentation. I think that that assumption is very baked into um, to many of the ideas that have come out of the sexual revolution and that fall broadly under the umbrella of what we might call sex positive feminism, um, which I don't want to rubbish entirely. You know, it does have some reasonable points to make um, about the restrictions that women were previously placed under, which were onerous and unfair. The sexual double standard is pretty much a human universal, whereby men are judged with promiscuity in a way that women aren't. I think the sexual double standard still exists, even if we still we don't talk about it as explicitly as we once did. Um, however, I would say that there is a, a sexual asymmetry that is essential to our species, whereby women 
face much greater risks from any given sexual encounter, heterosexual sexual encounter, than do men, um, primarily because we're the ones who get pregnant and therefore suffer all of the um, the risks associated with an either unwanted or unwanted pregnancy, as well as all the um, burdens of taking hormonal contraception. We're also smaller and weaker than men are, which means that we're more at risk of violence in any heterosexual encounter. The woman is almost certainly at a huge physical disadvantage. Most men can kill most women with their bare hands, whereas the reverse is absolutely not true. Um, and then that's coupled with the fact that there are psychological differences between the sexes, which mean that women are just just want casual sex less than men do. They, they desire it less, they enjoy it less, they're less likely to orgasm than men are. Um, in every possible way, to my mind, the kind of sexual adventure that Angel and other feminists promote comes with grave risks for women and very few benefits to them. I mean, my argument in the book is that, you know, fine, women should be permitted to, to experiment if they want to, but the problem is that we've had a very, a very swift reversal of sexual norms within the last 60 years post-sexual revolution where previously the expectation on on young women was that they would be chased before marriage they would protect their modesty all of this stuff which of course imposed terrible burdens on those women but now we've had a a perfect reversal where now what young women are saying is that they um are terrified of being called frigid they're terrified of being prudes they feel that there that there is a an obligation on them to have sex like men to aspire to have sex like men as an ideal despite all of the costs to them on a personal level. And I think that, I think to be honest, that Angel is reproducing an idea which is very, very dominant within progressive society and which is actually causing dreadful harm to young women who don't want to participate in a, a, a culture of casual sex but feel like they are obliged to, um, despite all of the harm it does them. I don't want this conversation to degenerate into anecdotes because too often when we talk about this stuff, it does. But where's your evidence that all these quote unquote young women are being somehow thrust, if that's the right word, into a world of casual sex? I mean, my own experience, and again, I don't want to make this anecdotal given that I have a daughter in her early 20s is that this generation is actually very, uh, from a female point of view, is actually very uninterested in sex. So it is true that, yeah, so so we've got two things that are going on simultaneously, which might seem superficially to be in contradiction with one another. So on the one hand, as I argue, we have a kind of casualization of sex. We have a um, hypersexualization of public life in many ways, in terms of things like, advertising television whatever sex sexual boundaries are um at a, uh, have been pushed to a greater extreme than they were in previous generations and the you know there, there are there is just much more sex everywhere we look on the other hand we also have what's been called the sex recession where young people in particular are having less sex than previous generations did it has a lot to do with the fact that people aren't getting married as often, or they're getting married much later, um, and married people have more sex than unmarried people. So this this increase in the number of 
um, men in particular, but but sometimes women too, who are remaining virgins into their twenties and thirties, has a lot to do with the fact that of the, the, the death of the institution of marriage. Um, those two things are actually, I think, compatible. I think what's happening is um, when young people are having sex, which they're not doing as often, they're 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 doing so within casual relationships much more often than within committed relationships. So they're having less sex and the sex that they're having is less loving, less meaningful, less intimate. Um, I'd say it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bad trend across the board. And perhaps it has to do with the fact that, you know, precisely this, this hypersexualization in public life, that there's a sort of loss of mystique almost around well you call it um in your book uh, or in some of your work uh, viberian disenchantment and of course uh weber invented this term it seems to capture a lot of the problems with contemporary society so it's deeply rooted in 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 a sociological tradition yeah so what i call sexual disenchantment is um an idea that comes out of the sexual revolution it's really just a reaction against Christianity, I think, quite straightforwardly. A reaction against, you know, religious tradition in general, but Christianity in particular, um, which says, of course, that sex has a special status, that sex has a sacred status. And sexual disenchantment says, no, sex needn't have any kind of special status. You know, if people want to invest meaning in their sexual relationships, then they can do so, but they're not, they don't have to. You know, sex can be as, 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 as meaningless as shaking hands, making coffee, you know, any other social interaction that you can imagine. Um, Is it, uh, uh, Louise, in one of the pieces I read from your Wall Street Journal excerpt, uh, you talk about free market capitalism and the pleasures of freedom. Is the kind of world you're critiquing, is it the, the, the neoliberalism of sexual behavior or is it the sexuality or the sexualization of neoliberalism are these two somehow connected are you against the free market of sex in sex i'd call it double liberalism rather than neoliberalism as i was sort of describing the same thing i think that um that it is to talk just of, it is sometimes confusing, particularly in a uh, kind of Anglo-American context, to talk about um, liberals because very often when people hear liberals, they conflate it with the left. I argue that actually what I'm talking about much more specifically is a um, a confluence between economically liberal ideas, I pro-free market ideas, and also socially liberal ideas, which are all to do with rejecting tradition. Um, rejecting um, any kind of rootedness in place, any kind of um, basically, I think my my argument is, and I'm I'm not alone in making this argument by any means, is that actually social liberalism really serves the interests of economic liberalism, in that people who are um, restricted in any way by 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 family relationships, um, geography, history, religious custom, anything make make worse workers basically they're less able to serve the interests of their employers that they're, they're, they're you know they can't work on sundays they can't move they can't work you know during um outside of school hours all this kind of stuff that having any kind of um uh, deep relationship with other people it, it imposes on you so 
I think that the the the, the term I use in the in the book, which is a little bit cheeky, is I talk about sexual Thatcherites, meaning people who want to do away with any of the restrictions on sexuality, which I think is analogous to wanting to do away with any with any of the restrictions on the economic market. Um, and the point I make in the book, which should be obvious, I think, to anyone who's sort of familiar with left-wing critiques of capitalism, is that when you do away with restrictions on any given market, it doesn't that doesn't affect everyone within the market equally. You know, if you remove, um, say, restrictions on um, on on workers in a factory so that they can work longer hours or whatever you you know whatever you want to imagine. That tends to benefit bosses at the expense of workers who are that now can more easily be exploited. And I argue that we've seen exactly the same thing with the sexual marketplace, which also contains, um, you know, the strong and the weak and, and everything in between, given that we're dealing with, you know, a human species, which is in, in, inherently riven by sexual asymmetry, where women are just much more vulnerable in any given sexual encounter than our men. And I argue that what we've seen post-sexual revolution has not been the liberation of women, which is what was promised and what, sh and what is, is, I think, falsely described as an outcome of this revolution. What we've seen has actually been um, men, well, a, a subset of men, so I think, you know, highly attractive, highly kind of sexually voracious men now have much greater access to the means of sort of sating their appetites and necessarily requires women to do that if they're straight um and i think that that has not been you know i don't think that has freed everyone by any means i think that it has actually caused um greater pain to come out of sexual asymmetry i mean that the, the the group of people i think who have been who have suffered most as a result of this revolution are specifically poor women um it's always the poor, isn't it, Louise? And always, and uh, I don't want to extend this argument, but I'm sure you could argue it's uh, women of color as well. Is this the, the Ryan Giggs syndrome? The ex-Manchester United footballer has been in the news a lot recently in terms of a, uh, a court case he was involved in against a former girlfriend. Apparently he had eight affairs at the same time. Is he an example of high-status men who have been using the sexual revolution for their own benefit? And does that suggest that even if you may not like this term particularly, you're nonetheless a feminist, and the case against the sexual revolution is a feminist argument? Yeah, yeah I happily call myself a feminist. I mean, I think that feminism can be defined very loosely, and I don't, I don't tend to get bogged down in arguments about who and who is and is not a feminist. You know, I'm quite happy to say that liberal, my, my, um, the, some of the feminists I critique are feminists too. It's just that we have different analyses of, of, of sort of how society could better protect the interests of women. Um, yeah, Ryan Giggs is, I mean, I write, I, I introduce the book by talking about Playboy the magazine and also Playboys as a sort of category, right? Men who, um, good riddance to, Playboy mentality, as one headline suggested. Yes, yeah. I mean, it, it was a... I think Playboys have been the great winners from the sexual revolution. Um, they are, of course, a minority of men. It, you know, it's, it is worth emphasising the fact that actually 
Um, most men are not having eight affairs on the go or whatever, um, either because they don't want to or because they're not um, sufficiently attractive to attract that many partners. You know, it's a small number of men who can really enjoy the fruits of the sexual revolution to the full. Um, but those men are having a great time. <laughs> you know, they're the real, they're the real women. Yeah, Louise, um, your book is about women, but you could extend the argument and include men as well. Richard Reeves is going to be on my show later this month at the Brookings Institute. He has a new book out about of boy, entitled Of Boys and Men, why the modern male is struggling, why it matters and what to do about it. And I think that his argument actually fits quite comfortably with yours, that it's both men and women, particularly young men and women who are suffering, maybe not from what you call the sexual revolution, but this broader uh liberalization if you like or neoliberalization of culture yeah, yeah yeah i mean i'm 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 completely comfortable with recognizing that men have lost out from the sexual revolution in all sorts of ways i mean also but it's also a question i think reads again i don't want to put words into richard's mouth but um that that men are losing confidence in this world too everyone's losing confidence sexual cultural personal and it also connects with the crisis of mental health that is afflicting us right now yeah yeah the crisis of meaning i mean i think that i think that the broad trend in what's happened in terms of the um the rejection of of bourgeois norms right the, i mean what's happened in in terms of sexuality has been the 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 stripping away of all of the norms that once governed um human sexual relations leaving just consent as the only um, virtue left standing. I think that, that we can see that across other areas of life too. And it, I think it tends to prioritise um, prioritise hedonism, prioritise short-termism, all of which are actually bad for everyone in the long run. I mean, even the playboys, I think, they might, they might enjoy their newfound sexual freedoms when they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s. They do eventually hit the wall themselves and and you know being a playboy has a shelf life and it does mean that if you've spent your whole life um refusing to settle you won't have the comforts of marriage and children and so on which people um find overwhelmingly to be the most meaningful parts of their lives particularly in old age when it starts to really matter so i think that in a sense no one has really um come off well um from the changes that we've seen but i also think that the to the extent that anyone has it has certainly been the playboys and not women as we've been as we, as the popular narrative tells us i'm not sure what your politics are louise but your argument has been appropriated by conservatives who have said uh you know you write for the daily mail it, it's all very well suggesting that you cross boundaries but when you write for the mail you're defining yourself uh, you write in the mail, for example, that you still believe in marriage. Your thing got, uh, seg uh, you had a big feature in the Wall Street Journal, one of the Murdoch papers about how the sexual revolution has hurt women. Yours is the kind of argument, I'm not suggesting that you are a cultural conservative, but yours is the kind of argument that's used by conservatives to say, oh, woke culture, liberals, they're ruining everything. Does that disappoint you? Would you like your argument not to be quite as appropriate as it seems to have become? 
I mean, I got a glowing review in the Observer, so it hasn't been quite as quite as yeah, um, I read that one as that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is true. That Conservatives I've love you. Them. You're the, you're the pinup, Louise, for better or worse. <laughs> and, uh, especially um, since you claim to be a liberal and you claim to also be critical of global capitalism. But I mean, what's your politics here? What what do you want? I don't claim to be a liberal. I mean, well, depending on how you use the term. I mean, I am I'm I am still arguably very much within the liberal framework. I mean, it's the sea in which we all swim. But you just believe um, that women should get married and recognise that they're different from men and that they shouldn't play around before marriage? I mean, women and men are different. That's not that's not really a matter of opinion, I would say. Do you think that women, for example, I mean, you wrote a, a, a critical piece on um, dating apps, which mm -hmm. I, I'm sure you're right. Dating apps need to stop pretending men and women want the same thing. Are you suggesting that women should get off Tinder, get off all these dating apps and stop playing around and just get married and have kids? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that... Um, I'm, I, I think that it is a very good thing that women now have more choice in who they're able to marry. And I am coming at this from a, from a secular perspective. I don't, I don't say that I am um, a liberal, but I am... I'd say that I'm a combination of being economically on the left and culturally on the right, which is um, a combination that you don't often see in the media, but is actually a very common combination in the public at large. If you if you if you poll most Westerners, you'll find them in that quadrant of economically left and culturally right, which is possibly the reason why I've had um, I have a good reception at places like the Mail, which is the most read newspaper in the UK. Um, this the Wall Street Journal. Um, yeah, I think that women getting off Tinder, everyone getting off Tinder is a good thing because I think it's a sort of tech that, you know, this comes back to the, to, to the capitalism critique, right? Like a quote that I use in the book is, um, we, we are increasingly entering a world where tech is governing every part of our lives, including the most intimate part, parts of our lives. Yeah. Dating apps is one example. The porn industry is another example. And it means that we are we are entering a world where you either live above the algorithm or you be live below the algorithm, right? In that you are you are controlled by the algorithm, which is written by faceless, unaccountable um, people in tech who are completely, you know, beyond democratic control. And I think that that's sinister. I think that's bad. And, and, and things like dating apps encourage a kind of a superficiality, a short-termism, a, a viewing of people as products to be shopped for and purchased, which I think is a is a is a really sinister way of understanding human relationships, and I think it brings out the worst in us, both men and women, but I think more so men. And I and I and I and, and I think this is a fundamentally feminist idea that because men have greater powers in certain ways, particularly greater physical powers. Um, when it comes to sexual relationships, I think that the onus is on men to have even greater responsibility for controlling and restraining their own, their own power. You know, this we used to call this chivalry. I think that that's yeah. You you like the thing. idea of, of chivalry? You yeah. Say, uh, you you quote the the word chivalry is now deeply unfashionable, uh, but it describes something of what we need. So you're suggesting that men are stronger, so they need to be more chivalrous, basically, towards women. But they're the ones who yeah. should manifest what self-control. Well, I think we all should, but I think that the burden falls falls more on men than on women for biological reasons. So, um, 
So when something bad happens, we can always blame the man because he's the one who's more out of control. Isn't that a rather old fashioned idea? You could use it for race. <laughs> you could use it for religion. It's been used by all sorts of very unpleasant people. I think that if an idea is very persistently old fashioned, that probably means it has some truth to it. Well, there's the old fashioned it... idea, Louise, for example, that, uh, that black people are more sexually out of control than white people. This was used to justify slavery. It was used to enslave particularly uh, black women. I mean, just because it's been used historically doesn't make it right. No, of course not. But also just because it's been used historically doesn't make it wrong either. They're clearly not in that example. But on something like the recognition that men are physically stronger than women, I mean... But, I but Louise, you've, you've argued on other shows and in, in written work that the physical strength doesn't really matter anymore. In the age of Tinder, all you need is a strong wrist to get online. So what difference does physical strength actually mean in terms of these new gender wars? I have argued that it has less economic importance because of technology, because of the fact that we are much less reliant on manual work than we once were, that we are much more likely to, to work in kind of laptop class jobs, um, which don't highlight physical strength nearly as much. I think that that's the reason why we now have many more women participating in the labour market than we once did. I don't think it's got a great deal to do with um, feminist legal and social reforms, although that clearly was a factor. I think it has m more to do with the fact that the new forms of work are, it's easier for women to do them and actually certain traits that are more common in women than in men, like um, conscientiousness, for instance, and agreeableness, are actually really well suited to service and knowledge economy jobs. And yes. empathy, which is becoming um, yeah, perhaps the, the most popular word on our show tends to be at least articulated by women more than men and perhaps oddly enough valued more by men than women. We did a show uh, with Kyla Shuler last year, The Trouble with White Women. Is there a counter history of feminism? I mean, the books on all this stuff. Do you think the problem, Louise, is not the problem with white feminists, but the problem with white American feminists? You wrote a piece uh, recently about why Roe versus, the Roe versus Wade issue, which we began with, doesn't really relate to you. And you suggested you've never even been to San Francisco or Washington, D.C., and yet it looms dominantly in your, in your mind. Is the problem with American feminism? Uh, are you, a, in some ways, perhaps an ideologue of a more localized feminism, both quite literally and also in global terms? Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think American cultural imperialism is a real problem, and not just in this domain. Um, and it has a lot to do with the internet and just the fact that we now are moving in a kind of um, anglof anglophone goo online, which doesn't really differentiate. So the, these companies, Facebook and Twitter and all the other apps, they're all American-owned, so they sort of bring with yeah. them what American values, particularly when it comes to sexuality. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, double liberalism is 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 deeply embedded in, you know, mainstream America. Um, Sounds a little like Vladimir Putin. He makes that argument, Louise. <laughs> if I could, I mean, you laugh, <laughs> but this kind of argument, when taken by less responsible people like yourself, is extremely dangerous, isn't it? I don't think that any kind of critique of liberalism. You know, there is a, I think there's a great deal of space between myself and Vladimir 
Putin. And if we're really yeah, I'm not say suggesting that you're, you're Putin in disguise, of course. <laughs> I don't. I think that if we we can't possibly say that it's impossible to critique, you know, liberalism or American imperialism or so on without kind of falling into bed with the devil. Um, the problem, I think, with with the being kind of America brained as many Brits are and you know, many and I'm America like brain I'm talking to you from San Francisco and I was born in <laughs> it's, it's more forgivable you actually live in America I think that the problem with it is that actually America is quite a peculiar place in a lot of ways and there you know particularly when it comes to something like the law which obviously doesn't apply to overseas um we we can't just transplant American discourse into say a British context and assume it will be intelligible. There are all sorts of really important differences between Britain and America. And even when it comes which, to sexual revolution, even when it comes to men and women. Yeah, I mean, one of one of the differences in the UK context, which I think makes British means that British feminism has a bit of a different character at the moment, is that we don't really have a Christian right in this country to speak of. We don't have a powerful Christian right. Mm which means I think the British feminists are much less focused on um, setting themselves up in opposition to the Christian right because it's just less politically salient. Whereas in America, I think that one of the reasons why American feminists in recent decades have failed to properly challenge the porn industry, for instance, and the sex industry is because they don't want to be seen to be even accidentally aligned with their greatest enemies, the Christian right. Um, you mentioned uh, Margaret Atwood at the top of the show, right? The Handmaid's Tale has become the kind of text for mo modern feminism, and you know it's it's a it's a it's a marvelous book highlighting the the perils of theocracy. Theocracy is not the only kind of anti-woman cultural political system, right? Like there are all sorts of other very fearsome risks to women. Um, which I think have gone unremarked because of the fact that um, American voices so dominate feminist discourse worldwide and because feminists in, in America have been so focused on things like Roe, you know, understandably, given the, given the context that they're in. But in someone like the UK, that actually doesn't apply. Like abortion rights are not at risk in this country, it, 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 which I think means in general that British feminists are more willing to do things like challenge the porn industry um, which, to my mind, is one of the most pressing feminist issues of our time. Well, let's end, Catherine, what to be done. You say challenging the porn industry. What does that mean? Do we need new laws banning online porn, for example? Yeah. I mean, whether or not it's sort of an outright ban is is is, is a, clearly a practical challenge. But I would absolutely say that we should be holding executives of these of these platforms person, personally liable for the flagrant, for instance, violation of child sexual abuse images laws. It is, is trivially easy to find those images on some of the biggest platforms in the world. We know from, from um, ongoing cases that platforms like MindGeek have not behaved responsibly in relation to child sexual abuse images. You know, we are all, I think, agreed that and the law the law makes clear that these images shouldn't be available and yet they are and these 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 incredibly wealthy global corporations are getting away with the most heinous crimes and it, it is it is a practical challenge to um 
to hold them liable, but it, but the failure to do so is also partly being to do with a lack of will and to do with kind of feminist wrangling over the ethics of the porn industry, um, which I just think is, I think we've reached the end of the road on that. I think we just have to, we have to act. It's so you're suggesting it needs to be a new front in the war against American big tech, um, not just antitrust, not just privacy, uh, the issue of the impact, particularly of some one kind of pornography or another on sexual criminality, these networks, social media platforms, dating apps, they all need to be more liable under the law. Yeah, I mean, particularly, I put porn at the top of the list, you know, long before I put, like, hate speech on Twitter. What would happen if someone like Ryan Giggs made a defense? Well, you know, I was dating eight women at the same time and abusing them. It's because I spent too much time on Pornhub. Are you suggesting that Pornhub should be liable for that? I don't think... It's difficult to prove um, direct link with those kind of individual cases. So I think on a practical level... No, I mean, I would be delighted to just start by removing content on, on Pornhub that is already illegal under laws in the UK and also elsewhere um, for for porn platforms to actually make some effort to stop under 18s from accessing their content. You know, we know that it is now routine for children to be seeing porn at the ages of eight, nine, 10, 11. You know, they're seeing it on their smartphones. We've got we've got these computers in children's pockets and these kind of multi-billion dollar corporations are beaming the most like appalling content into into children's pockets and, and we've got a generation who are essentially being used as guinea pigs. And I, I you know, I don't think it makes me crazy to think that that's something that we should all be concerned about and that trying to regulate those those corporations should be a feminist priority. Louise Nietzsche warned us that what Weber called disenchantment would be recycled in, in ways post in, in a post-Christian world. Um, are you worried that, I mean, you know, you, as I said, your argument gets used. There's one piece I found about sexual wickedness and church times. Are you worried that that this kind of argument might recreate the morality of the Christian church without Christianity? Or is that what you want? Um, so I would argue that actually all of our, all of our moral ideas in the West are ultimately Christian ideas, right? Whether or not we call them that, like when we talk about virtues like mercy and humility and the protection of the weak and so on we are talking about christian virtues you know we've got two millennia of christian history that we are um have only very recently begun to reject so i'm you know my argument is a secular one but i'm also aware of the fact that i am calling on deep-rooted ideas that are present in even in atheists you know anyone who's sort of brought up in this culture and i think that pitching this battle as one between feminism on the one hand and Christianity on the other is a false dichotomy. I think feminism is actually, um, has come out of Christianity and is in some sense a, um, just a new iteration of it. And the conflicts that we're having are <laughs> over, over, you know, which virtues to prioritize are conflicts that people have had repeatedly 
within the last 2,000 years. So I don't think that we should be returning, obviously, or, or, or attempting to create a kind of Handmaid's Tale-style theocracy. I do think that some virtues like, for instance, protection of the weak, um, which are Christian virtues, absolutely should be should be reprioritized and are on and are in, in direct conflict with the behavior of, for instance, um, porn companies like MindGeek. Well, that might be the subject of another book, Louise. I think it would be Maybe. probably even more <laughs> controversial than the case against the sexual revolution, which is just out today in the US. It's already out in the UK. It's a great acclaim and controversy. It's an important book, an important argument, and you make it in a, in a very coherent and responsible and compelling way. I mean, I agree with everything you say, but I'm sure you don't agree with everything you say, but there's something there. Uh, congratulations, Louise, on, on what on the book, uh, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, out right now. Um, what else are you reading, Louise, these days uh, to keep you up to date with the world, with all its complexities and with the, uh, what we might say, the, the, the mindless orthodoxies of our ultra-liberal age? You don't really believe that, do you? Do we really <laughs> have mindless orthodoxies? Or do we I really live in an ultra liberal age? I don't believe that. I don't think you do <laughs> I didn't write the blurb. Um, exactly. I've been reading um, Blue Labour. It's a new book by Morris Glassman, who's a, a very um, a prominent thinker in the UK um, and, uh, and uh, in agreement with me on the um, culturally right, economically left quadrant. Um, and he, uh, yes, I mean, his argument is, is my, my argument in relation to sexuality is really just a smaller component of the mm. larger thing that he is talking about. Um, what else have I been reading? I've been reading the new J.K. Rowling novel, which has been probably more controversial than my book, if you can imagine that. Mm. Well, we need a book about not just prohibiting sex, maybe drink and drugs as well, and then we'd be back, <laughs> back with Martin Luther. Louise, thank you so much. Thank you.